up on today's show, the G7 summit underway in the United Kingdom with a focus on dealing with Russia and China. The province has announced some new steps to address the opioid epidemic. And you ever pay attention to the online reviews you see when you're out shopping for, I don't know, a vacation, a new product, whatever the case may be? We'll take a deep dive into online reviews. World leaders have gathered in the UK for this year's G7 summit. US President Joe Biden has publicly stated that he wants to get tough on China, and along with Boris Johnson of the UK, forge an anti-China coalition of democracies. Now, given Canada's general reluctance to take any action that may upset the Chinese, the question is, where does Justin Trudeau stand on all of this? Will he take advantage of this posture? Charles Burton joins us now, and uh, Charles is a senior fellow at the Macdonald laurier Institute Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. He's also a former counsellor at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. Charles, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Good morning, Shay. So, China and uh, that country's, well, let's call it rogue behaviour and defiance of international law have been talked about a lot recently, and a lot of observers pointing to this summit saying this needs to be a turning point in the West position on China's international actions. Do you agree that this is something of a pivotal moment? Well, I hope it's a pivotal moment. Um, certainly the Chinese uh, media that I've been monitoring suggests that, you know, there's too much division within the G7 and we won't see any kind of consensus as to a coordinated, concerted action to try and get China to um, come into compliance with the norms of the international rules-based order. But you know, the idea is, uh, and Boris Johnson of Britain has articulated it well, is to develop a D10, which would be all the members of the G7, which of course includes Japan, mm-hmm. and um, three countries which are attending this year in Cornwall, uh, Australia, India, and South Korea, all of which are considerably threatened by, by China's um, violations of the norms of trade and diplomacy. So, you know, the idea is to to get together and try and come up with some means to bring China back into compliance because the UN is just not working out for this because China is a member of the a permanent member of the Security Council and has the veto power. So, you know, I hope it works. Um, there's certainly a lot of issues that um, that we need to try and address before it gets too late and China, you know, gets a, a, a kind of advantage over us that we won't be able to turn back. Yeah, and Charles, one of the interesting things about this is, you know, when you take a look at those the G7 or, as you said, the D10 and all these countries, they don't agree on a lot of things unanimously, but China seems to be one. So you would think... Um, that would be an opportunity for progress because, as you said, they're all being influenced or threatened in some way. Yeah, I mean, especially Australia, which, you know, suggested that we need to have a neutral scientific ex- uh, investigation of the origins of COVID-19. And the Chinese government just, you know, like just made a response way out of proportion to this, which was um, to start barring um, important Australian uh, agricultural commodity exports and, and coal into China on spurious grounds. So, you know, uh, Australia has uh, about a 30% trade dependence on China and in their international trade. Canada only has 4%, so we don't have as much to lose if if China does um, come down yeah. heavy on us. But the bottom line is that, 
you know, we we need to be standing up for each other, and you know, Canada expects the world to to support us in in the Chinese hostage diplomacy of Michael Kovac and Michael Spader. But I don't hear Canada doing too much with regard to the hostage uh, diplomacy that China is engaging in against um, Australians. So, you know, we really need to have a coordinated means to go about this and on other issues as well, the genocide in Xinjiang, the Chinese incursions into the international waters of the South China Sea, China's uh, threat, a military threat against uh, democratic Taiwan. You know, there are all sorts of areas in which we should be standing together to counter a, a non-democratic force that wants to dominate the global geostrategic um, politics and economics. And and if they achieve, if they succeed, then that would be very, very much against Canadian values, security, and sovereignty. So, you know, we should be doing it. The question is, do we have the political will to actually follow through? Well, that's the question. And I guess maybe this will be a defining moment in that discussion. Is it political will, or is it the fact that we, up until this point, don't feel we really, you know, we have to respect where we fit in the world order, and on our own, we can't do much. But as you say, with the backing of these other countries, will Canada go all in and be part of this partnership, knowing that they've got the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia and all the rest of these other countries? You know, it's it would seem strength in numbers in some ways, and it could help their own cause. Yeah, you would have thought. I mean, I think that for Canada, there's certainly uh, our policy towards China has been largely one of passiveness. You know, we haven't done anything meaningful uh, that we're aware of about Kovrig and favor. I mean, if we're engaging in slow, quiet diplomacy negotiations, 910 days after those men have been put into Chinese prison hell, mm-hmm. you know, they're still not out. So that suggests that didn't work. And when China, you know, pressured us further on the Meng Wanzhou, the Huawei CFO, extradition case to the United States by by barring our canola seeds and meat on entirely spurious grounds, Canada didn't take any retaliatory action. And we and Canada really doesn't do anything meaningful about, you know, Chinese menacing and harassing operations against persons of Chinese origin in our country or pervasive Chinese espionage and cyber espionage. So, you know, I think that on the one hand, we're worried about protecting our market share in China. On the other hand, I think China has got a lot of influence at senior levels of policymakers in our country, and we need to, you know, do something about that. And the obvious thing to do would be to come up with a Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act like Australia or the Foreign Agents Registration Act like the United States that would require that Canadians in positions of influence or receiving benefits from a foreign state have to make it transparent and tell us, you know, that they're acting, that they're being paid by a foreign state and therefore one could expect that they would be acting on behalf of that foreign state. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Um, Last one before I let you go here. We know that all of these countries are dealing with their own issues with China and, you know, if they can actually come together and form a unified front and come up with some sort of consensus and policy, you know, that these major democracies can agree upon and sort of agree they'll all implement as a as one, um, does that sway what's going on with China? Because we know up until now, China has been pretty much undeterred by any actions any of these countries have taken. They've just continued to do what they're going to do. Well, I mean, it's largely because it's an asymmetrical bilateral relationship that China can take advantage of. You know, they're they're able to to cause considerable problems for our farmers. There's not a lot that we can do yes. against them. But if we all act together, 
you know, then then we do have sufficient weight to strongly disincentivize China from floating the norms of trade and diplomacy and to play according to, to the rules. If we don't do that, then it simply encourages China to do more of the same and further their audacious plans to, you know, destroy the WTO and the UN and set up their own institutions, the community of the common destiny of mankind, and restructure the entire global economy by the Belt and Road Initiative to, to center on China. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's not the kind of world we want. We want a world where you know, based on on equal sovereignty of nations and human rights and democracy, and that's counter to China's overall agenda. Yeah, so hopefully we see some progress on that front. Uh, Charles, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Good to speak with you, Shay. Yeah, thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you, sir. That is Charles Burton, who is a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad and a former councillor at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing, talking about the G7 summit and how China is one of the topics of discussion among the leaders of the world's uh, seven largest economies. Um, so we'll see what happens there. Um, the other topics of discussion, climate change and uh, the pandemic. Those are the three that have been mentioned by the leaders as they want to address while they're there. And uh, already some announcements when it comes to vaccines. Canada is expected to announce a donation of up to 100 million doses of vaccine, which is its share of the 1 billion dose pledge that's expected to emerge from all countries that are attending the summit this weekend. Um, according to a Canadian government source, the 100 million doses would include previous contributions which uh, includes the $440 million that was given to the COVAX program. So $100 million from Canada is expected. Um, the World Health Organization is pressing these leaders to ensure that, you know, there's access uh, around the world. Uh, UK Foreign Secretary Dominic Robb says he agrees. There's a global responsibility to ensure that everyone is vaccinated as soon as possible. The aim is to get the world vaccinated by the end of 2022. If we can do that, uh, we'll be making a real uh, step forward in dealing with the pandemic globally, which is important because we know no one's safe until everyone's safe. So they seem to be on board. Uh, The United States, uh, Joe Biden, announced um, he was with the chief executive of Pfizer yesterday. They pledged to buy and donate 500 million new doses. So that handles half of the 1 billion doses right there. Canada with another 100 million. And then you've got, you know, UK and the rest of the countries to come on board. So that's a focus of the summit this week. And uh, it makes sense, right? I mean, as they said, we're not all safe until everybody is safe. Uh, we know what happens with variants and things like that. You know what's happening in Calgary right now with the Delta variant at Foothills Hospital and double vaccinated people getting sick with that Delta variant. So um, the sooner we get everybody vaccinated, the better off we are. Well, the opioid epidemic continues to take lives at an alarming rate in this problem. Just a, It's a steady climb year after year after year. 346 people died in the first three months of the year in Alberta. Three months. That's more than any other time period since these deaths were first tracked. Uh, EMS in Edmonton reported 50 overdose calls last weekend. Uh, Yesterday, we spoke to an emergency room physician who said that COVID cases are dropping off, but hospitals are still stressed because of an increase in overdose patients. It's an all-out crisis. There's no doubt about it. Now, this week, the government announced something of a response. They are spending $3.5 million on increased recovery beds and a new nasal naloxone program. Well, kind of new. We'll get into that. We'll talk now with Dr. Hakik Varani, who is an associate professor at the University of Alberta, specializing in public health and addiction medicine. Dr. Varani, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. 
Oh, you're welcome, Shay. Uh, yeah, let's just break it down into the two parts that were announced. Um, first of all, the naloxone program. It's not new. Uh, nasal naloxone has been around for, for some time. So uh, what did they announce that changes things in terms of naloxone in Alberta? Yeah, it was a little concerning to hear the associate minister describe nasal naloxone as a new technology. Yeah. I mean, this has been around for five years plus. Um, it was also concerning to hear him describe it as... Uh, uh, a product that was five times more effective or more potent than the intramuscular naloxone, which is being handed out across pharmacies uh, in this province um, to help people um, provide aid to, to folks who have a, an overdose. The intramuscular naloxone is an extremely effective product. It's far cheaper than the intranasal one, which allows us to give it um, to more people in the population. Um, and it's also more predictable the int- than the intranasal naloxone, which is also a good product, but requires a much higher concentration because, as you can imagine, there's a lot more barriers between the nostril and the circulation than there sure. is between uh, a, a muscle and, a circu- and the circulation. Uh, I think if it leaves people with the impression that they're better off with a nal- nasal naloxone um, product, um, and that it's more effective at reversing an overdose. I'm very concerned by that um, because the quicker response comes from an intramuscular dosage. Um, and if people avoid taking the take-home naloxone kits that are being offered right now because they're left with the impression that the nasal one is better, um, that could cause a public health problem. Right, yeah. So, okay. Uh, the other announcement, the other half of the announcement, I guess, is an increase into recovery beds. But when you dig into it, it's actually only eight new beds uh, over three yeah. years, upgrades to 27 more. Now, that's a good thing. Uh, any increase in recovery beds is a good thing. We're not discounting the importance of increased recovery spots. Um, but it seems when you put those two things together, it's it comes across as, look what we're doing, but really we're not doing anything because we know that's not where the focus needs to be, Right. Yeah, I think where you're point, what you're pointing out is that, you know, the math doesn't add up. We're in the midst of a public health emergency seven years in where four people per day are dying from opioid overdose in this province. It's getting worse. Um, and so, you know, adding a, a dozen or a couple of dozen of opportunities for people to pursue abstinence-based treatment certainly doesn't scale uh, or doesn't match the scale of the emergency that we face. Um, that's a significant concern. Yeah, and and again, I mean, reco- more recovery beds is great, but, you know, among people with lived experience and, and those in the addiction community, public health community like yourself, the overwhelming consensus here is that to address this issue, harm reduction is, is the path out. That's the way that you save lives. But we've actually seen, well, these announcements are being made, a reduction or more barriers to harm reduction in Alberta, right? That's... That's correct. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, when we're faced with a public health emergency, the imperative is to use those life-saving interventions that have good science behind them that we can scale up rapidly um, to, uh, to match the magnitude of the problem that we're faced with. And we can do that with harm reduction programs. We certainly can't do that with, um, uh, you know, a few dozen uh, treatment beds. And the science around treatment beds is certainly not as convincing as the science around um, harm reduction. That's not to say that there aren't definitely great stories of people who have achieved abstinence-based recovery by using services like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But what it is to say is that, man, we're having four people per day are dying from fatal overdose. Um, And we cannot touch that, um, even the tip of that iceberg, 
um, by uh, taking the approach that the Alberta government is taking. I think the other real concerning thing for um, for the public health community is that um, this tendency to create an impression that supervised consumption sites have not gone through um, significant community consultation prior to establishing themselves is really misleading. I mean, I think of the community here in Edmonton, um, where the group that um, undertook to establish several supervised consumption sites uh, integrated into community services now went through two full months of extensive community consultation after years of stakeholder um, partnerships. They went door-to-door from businesses to residences um, in a four-block radius of all of these sites. Um, They did virtual tours with neighbours and the business community. They had meeting after meeting after meeting with community association and business leagues. Um, They did online surveys and in-person surveys. I mean, this was an undertaking of of great significance in terms of how um, lockstep they were with the community in trying to establish these sites. And to say that um, uh, communities weren't consulted uh, is just uh, is just erroneous. It seems like there's definitely uh, I don't even reluctance isn't a strong enough word from our provincial government when it comes to safe consumption sites. Now, the mental health and addictions minister Jason Luan acknowledged that the steps they took this week won't solve this problem, but he claims that it continues their continuum of care model of addressing the opioid overdose epidemic. Um, to my thinking, the continuum care model should start with keeping the patient alive and then moving on to treatment. But is there any scientific body, any medical body at all that now here in 2021, years after this has been ongoing, does not see harm reduction as the best course of action? Is there a scientific leg to stand on to say, we need to increase recovery beds in the naloxone and uh, move away from safe consumption sites? Where does the science fall on this discussion? Yeah, there's certainly no science that says we need to move away from um, supervised consumption. Um, and you're absolutely right that the prerequisite to achieving a better quality of life, um, if that includes that abstinence from psychoactive substances, is the person needs to be alive. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, I, I'm reminded of a, of a study that was published three or four years ago that um, described the American population's relationship with alcohol. And at that time, it was um, it was found that about one in eight American adults were problem drinkers, um, but that uh, it, that that proportion was much higher at younger ages. So it spoke to the fact that you know people use psychoactive substances, all sorts of them, and they kind of age out of um, of problems with those psychoactive substances, so long as they can stay alive. Mm-hmm. And if we can't if we can't um, help people to be safe when they use illegal substances like uh, street heroin that contains fentanyl and all sorts of other classes of drugs now that make it unpredictable and dangerous. Um, If we can't keep them safe while they go through their trajectory um, through life, discover how they want their quality of life to evolve, um, let the risks and benefits of their substance use evolve to a point where they can do so more safely, Um, if we can't keep them alive through that trajectory, uh, we're, we're in a big problem. And when it comes to the current supply of illicit drugs, um, we don't have that much time to act. It's been seven years and the drug supply is getting worse and worse. Yeah, it, it continues to get worse and worse. And like you say, it's been around for a while. There's a lot of evidence and research um, to support 
the best way to deal with this. Our Premier says he, he likes to follow the science when he talks about COVID-19. It's always, we're following the science, we're following the science. So, um, as somebody who spends their life involved in public health and addiction, what does the science say is the optimal approach to dealing with the opioid epidemic? If you're going to follow the science, what do you need to do starting today? Yeah. So the 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 first thing to say is that we have to follow the epidemiology in terms of uh, if we're going to follow the science. And the epidemiology says this is a problem that is getting worse and it requires an urgent response. That's the math of it. Um, the second thing that the science says is that there are categories of life-saving interventions that must be implemented quickly and expanded rapidly. Um, those are things like supervised consumption sites. There's things like take-home naloxone programs with the most inexpensive um, product that you can use that blankets the population with the greatest proportion of people who have access to a take-home naloxone kit so that if they encounter somebody who um, has had an adverse uh, event from the use of psychoactive substances that they can provide the antidote to opioid overdose. Um, The third thing that the science says is that um, medication-based treatments, opioid agonist treatments with medications like methadone, buprenorphine, naloxone, increasingly slow-release oral morphine, these medications in a a relationship with, um, um, with a medical practitioner are important in terms of achieving abstinence from uh, illegal substances and providing a benefit of uh, survival um, in terms of opioid overdose, but also from all causes of death, um, these medications are proven to to be advantageous for survival. And then what we have to do in public health emergencies, just like we have with COVID, is exercise some innovation um, and uh, take promising practices that look like they could have um, great effects in the population and expand those rapidly. So those would be things like um, overdose prevention services that are virtual. So the government has decided to pilot one, um, but I think at at times like these, we need more than pilots. We need rapidly expanding population-based programs. Um, that have good scientific rigor so that we can evaluate them, but also um, have promise. So in this case, we have an illegal substance that, uh, or illegal drugs that are, are very toxic. Um, we need people to have access to help if they have an overdose. And so doing something like um, hooking uh, people who use drugs up with peers who they can trust on the phone or online when they're using substances, there's somebody available to them if something bad happens. That's something that we need to um, try out and rapidly expand. And the other thing that we need to do to address um, the toxicity of the illegal drug supply is to provide pharmaceutical alternatives to people who want to avail themselves of it so that they don't have to buy drugs from the street that are increasingly unpredictable and dangerous. So that's kind of a package of things that we could do rapidly um, to uh, get to solving this problem. Yeah, there is a game plan that can be followed based on the science and and the study around this, and uh, I appreciate you laying it out for us. Thanks so much, Doc. You betcha. That is Dr. Hakeek Varani, who is uh, a public health um, and addictions medicine specialist and an associate professor at the University of Alberta. And, um, you know, when you talk about this issue, the science is clear, you know, the science, and there's... Unfortunately, when you talk about uh, legal substances and you talk about addiction, there are a lot of other competing narratives that come into it, right? There's still, um, uh, you know, the the world's 
health organizations and the world's medical community and the world's addictions community has has caught this uh, a, a, a disease, a chronic relapsing disease, and they, they've defined it as that, and they've come up with evidence-based treatment plans. But there's also a school of thought that still continues to see it as some sort of moral failing, and um, you don't want to encourage this. So you get that competing narrative when the science is pretty clear, and, and it's been well-studied and well-documented, and there's there's a large field of expertise that you can tap into, um, but it requires putting down some of the old-fashioned notions about addiction um, and the way that it is, and instead of just saying it's it's a it's an illness, just like any other mental illness or physical illness, and we do have ways of treating it and helping people get better. Um, for some reason, there's still that stigma surrounding it, so it's a tough one. And um, right now, people are dying because of that hesitancy. As he said, four people a day, three hundred and forty-six uh, Albertans died in the first three months of this year. So it's full on a public health emergency. It's a crisis, and we need to respond. Um, and the public health and addiction community saying what the government announced this week is helpful. It's good, but it is not adequate to address the situation that we're in. We've all seen them. We've all done it. We've all, you know, read them. Um, We've talked before about the way that big tech manipulates us, you know, feeding us a steady diet of advertising and content based on what we do with our devices, where we go, what we search for, things like that. But that's just one way they exert their virtual influence. You've no doubt seen online reviews, right? Without a doubt, if you've ever shopped for anything or planned a trip or whatever the case may be, you've run across online reviews, especially on Google. Uh, You may even be very well aware that many of them are probably fake, but they're still there. And they are powerful. To get a little more on this, we're going to chat now with Kay Dean, who is a former fraud investigator with the U.S. Department of Education and is the creator of Fake Review Watch on YouTube and a member of the Alliance to Counter Crime Online. Kay, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me, Shay. You have done a ton of work around fake reviews and um, just how pervasive and damaging they are. Just give us a snapshot of some of the things that you found. Can you trust any online review? Actually, I've been looking at this issue for three years in depth, Shay, and I, at this point, would recommend that you just dismiss them altogether. You've pointed out some instances where you can track one person making the same review in like six different cities, a thousand miles apart. Obviously, they have no idea what they're talking about, right? Correct, yes. And also patterns emerge when you start to aggregate these reviewers or profiles. You start to see these set patterns, and it's clearly fake. Yeah, so walk us through that, what, the work that you've done and sort of how you're able to identify what's going on. Well, yeah, for example, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a recent story that I uh, did with the CBC um, uncovered a network of over 1,200 North American businesses who are linked by fake reviews on Google. And what I mean by linked is when you start to see the patterns of these reviewers um, across multiple um, profiles, you start to aggregate them. You see set patterns, which are clearly fraudulent. And so what most consumers don't realize is there's a lot more beneath those stars than you really see. You're just assuming that Google is providing you with, you know, they've done their work and in, in, in ferreting out the fraud. And I'm here to tell you they're not. Um, Often the profile photos that you see yeah. are lifted with these fraudulent profiles off the Internet. 
And the businesses that they post, the other businesses, set a, just a, a set pattern which indicates fraud. And I'll give you an example if you'd like me to. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. For example, uh, in the story that I, I did with the CBC, um, a wig store in Ontario would happen to have 76 reviewers in common with the U.S. home security company, or 72 of their reviewers happen to use the same U.S. lawn care company, or let's say 31 also use the same dentist in Michigan. And when you start to see these patterns over multiple profiles, you see that it's very well organized. And what you also see, Shay, is that Google has to see this. Sure. Of course. It's obvious. And so on my YouTube channel, I published a video called U.S. Canadian Fake Google Review Network. And when you see this, and it's in video form, which just is so compelling, uh, most viewers, your listeners, listeners would think, my gosh, this is what Google is providing as legitimate reviews? You would never trust it again. Okay, so let's go back into that. Those numbers you just gave about lawn care, you know, reviewing lawn cares and wig stores, you're not pulling those out of the air. You actually track that the same people are reviewing all four of those things when obviously they don't have any interaction with all four of them. Correct, yes. This is just uh, one aspect. Yeah. This is the work, what I believe, Shay, uh, of an online marketing company. Yeah, I'm wondering, create- like, who, who, who's doing this and, and how, like... Is somebody paying for this? Like, what is the the concept around these fake reviews? Obviously, somebody's making money off it, but how do they go about deciding what they're going to review and what they don't review? Are companies paying them to do it or what? Yes, yes. It's my belief, in my opinion, obviously, that when you see the businesses involved and you see that on my spreadsheets, that, yes, of course, they are benefiting from fake reviews. And these aren't just stars, Shay. These are fake, also accompanied by fake stories. When you start to pause and, and read, the, they're fake stories. Yeah. And often this, the, the texts of these reviews are um, provided by, I've seen, uh, by the businesses themselves. So it's just self-written advertising. Unbelievable. Now, okay, so let's talk about how that affects people. If you're a business that is not playing that game, which is garbage, and should, no, no business should be playing it, but now suddenly if you're another wig store in Ontario, you're competing because people will Google it. They'll go online and see these 76 people with glowing reviews for one wig store. The other guy's got no reviews. Um, businesses have to try and somehow combat that, right? Correct, yes. And that basically, yeah, yeah, it, it creates an environment where cheating's rewarded because, Shay, no one is policing no. these review sites. They don't police themselves, and you can't. I think consumers need to know that. You know, these tech companies are not policing these sites. And when you watch my video, you, 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 it's just so compelling. You think, oh, my gosh, you would never trust it again. And so it, it creates an environment where cheating is rewarded for the honest uh, businesses and consumers are being duped by yeah. the millions. Um, and this is just one aspect. The, this, this one example I was talking about, this is organized. It is done by a marketing company who is being hired by these companies to provide them with fake reviews. And it's obvious. You can see it. Um, but there's also other aspects that I've seen. There's businesses who get on social media. When I say social media, Facebook groups devoted just to fake reviews um, that exist openly and flagrantly, and they trade reviews with each other, or they purchase reviews also from uh, very cheaply from overseas. So those are three aspects that I've uncovered in this review world that are going on. Unreal. Now, you've uncovered this on your own. So clearly, we know Google and, you know, these other giant reviews or online entities that offer reviews. They know about it. They can easily figure it out with the massive infrastructure that they have. They must know about it. Why, do, why don't they do anything? 
I, you know, uh, Shay, for one, yeah, to your point, yeah, if a lone citizen investigator like myself can ferret out a network of over 1,200 North American businesses who are receiving fake Google reviews, I think a multi-billion dollar yeah. tech company can do the same thing. Uh, and to, your, uh, to answer your question, they have no incentive to. Um, they make money, where the re- whether the reviews are real or fake. Um, they are not, at least in the United States, they are not held um, liable for third-party content, so they escape liability. Um, and so as a consequence, um, just honest businesses are being harmed uh, tremendously, yeah. and consumers are using these reviews heavily, as you mentioned in, the, in your opening uh, uh, statistics show or surveys show, consumers use these reviews a lot, so it really, really matters. Um, and so, you know, I created my YouTube channel just as a way to try to inform the public and shine a light on this issue. So when we talk about um, anything like this with the Internet and trying to regulate this kind of misbehavior on the Internet, which I don't know if it can be done, um, have any government shown an appetite to try and get involved in regulating this fake review industry? Obviously, it's, it's, it's not the way you want to see things operate. Are governments paying any attention to this? I believe there's proposed legislation um, in Ottawa and in Washington here in the United States uh, to take this on. It's a massive problem in, in lots of uh, areas, you know, and this review issue is just one one of many. Um, so I think there is an appetite, but I think it's being stalled uh, because of uh, industry lobbying, for one thing. Um, and so in the meantime, I think consumers just need to be informed that no one is really regulating or policing this stuff. Um, and as a consequence, I just see that millions of consumers are just being duped. Yes. Um, so if you're a consumer and you're trying to get some honest reviews or reaction or some insight into, you know, you're buying something or a service or a company or whatever, they, is there anywhere you can go that you can have a little bit of trust in what you're seeing? You Anybody know, Shane, policing this? Um, I don't trust. I've seen it now. I've done an in-depth investigation into this issue, and I've just seen it being gamed. When I say it, the review platforms, yeah. all of them being gamed, and uh, in so many different ways and different angles, you know. And they just get more sophisticated, you know. The the um, the people doing this uh, because it matters so much, you know. As you mentioned, you know, businesses live and die by these yeah. reviews. Um, if you're not getting reviews, you people won't find you. Um, it's so important. So. Uh, I just don't trust it. So I would say talk to people. Talk to your neighbors. Get out and get real opinions from real people because I've just seen so much fraud in this area and the the lack of regulation and policing, self-policing by these review platforms um, is just not happening. Uh, So it really, really, I just wish people would not use it. And maybe eventually it just, they, it won't matter anymore because people just will look at these reviews really as just advertising. Right, exactly, and and take it for what it is and, and don't put any stock into it. But they do, and that's the, the disturbing part is they matter, and people are using them. Um, oh, I and, do. I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know what? As I said in the opener, I know a lot of those reviews may be fake, but still, um, you want some sort of basis to make a decision on, so you get you sucked know, into it. I do. I think, Shay, it's just, uh, I think there's that human nature. You just want affirmation. I did my due diligence. I I looked. I Googled it. And, you know, too, it all's tied into into the search um, uh, uh, characteristics, too. If you have a lot of reviews, people find you. And so um, 
there's just not much motivation for um, businesses not to cheat. And so I think it's what it's contributing to, even there's a philosophical question of just this erosion of business ethics that's occurring um, because you have to cheat to compete because it's just not punished. It's not, you know, being enforced. And uh, it's really what I liken to, to, to the Wild West, and there's no sheriff. It's this free-for-all. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly yep. what it is. Kay, thank you so much. That's a, a great discussion, and uh, hopefully it opens some eyes this morning and uh, people yeah, are a little more suspicious. Me. Yeah, thank you yeah, so much. thank you, Shay. Enjoyed it. Bye-bye. That is Kay Dean, who is a former fraud investigator with the U.S. Department of Education. She's creator of, uh, if you want to check it out, she does a lot more work. It's called the Fake Review Watch on YouTube, where she goes into some of the work. And as she said, you know, you've got the same people, you know, dozens of the same people reviewing a wig store in Vaughan, Ontario, um, and attending a dental practice in Michigan and using a lawn care company all over the United States. It's obviously fake, uh, but it happens, and it happens all the time. Okay, I'm going to get George's call in here quick before we have to take a break. George, you've got some experience with this? Oh, yeah. I'm a small business person, and I get calls from the marketing companies for advertising and having an online presence and on the um, unsolicited uh, reviews. And the first one of their comments is, you know, hire us. We can manipulate. We can go and adjust your views to get you more business. We can go and uh, it's a marketing aspect of what they're trying to sell me all the time. Really? It is. Oh, yeah. Like, it's not new, and they do it deliberately. They say, get the reviews, we will manipulate it, we will get you the better of the reviews, and eliminate whatever, you know, that yeah. you don't. Yeah. And, but that's part of their marketing system. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that they were actually out there actively campaigning for business like that. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because we do put stock into those online reviews. So you know somebody's going to figure out soon enough, hey, we can just be a, a fake review mill and crank out thousands of these every day, build a bunch of fake profiles, and just review businesses all over the place. And yeah, some businesses are paying for it. Unbelievable. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.